Amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that by the power of this sacrifice, the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, the incarnate Son of God who walked on this earth that we share, and the sacrifice of His blood made this morning possible. We are the recipients of such manifold grace that surely we cannot contain, even if we were to be asked our testimony and were to rehearse it for hours. There is no way for us to describe and to catalog and to declare, to testify to the sum total of all the grace extended toward us, because it is truly infinite. Though we were caught in our death and trespasses and sins, the miry clay of hell-bent enmity with God, the merciful hand of Jesus Christ, pierced for our transgressions and sins, reached into that abyss and grabbed us with a grip as strong as heaven and pulled us out and set our feet upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And here we stand. And here we stand. This morning as we open your scriptures, which is the most glorious display that our minds could ever peruse of what you have done in that great work, I pray that you would awaken us in our understanding, in our capacity to praise, in our prayer life, in our heart affections, to new dimensions, the reality of our experience in Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank you, Father, that you have bound us together with cords of redemption that cannot be broken. And by that binding power, we will be kept for eternity. That the Lamb who was slain might receive the reward of his sufferings. And here we stand as your rewards. We are, if we are in Christ Jesus this morning, the trophies and the showcase of God's redemptive power, the rewards of the suffering of the Lamb who was slain. May we be staggered afresh at these glorious thoughts. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Praise the Lord for the privilege of gathering together around His Word this morning. I'd encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 11. Again, the title of this morning's message is Eavesdropping on the Trinity, Listening to the Conversations of the Godhead in Scripture. While you're turning to Matthew 11, I want to apologize to you for not delivering this message previously. I'm backtracking a bit. Perhaps it was just to wait for the opportune moment where upon enough reflection and study, I felt like I was doing the text at least a little more justice than I would do If I stepped into it without enough thought and prayer, so I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will make up for my lack this morning, and hopefully with this extra time thinking and declaring His Word from Matthew, it will draw our attention in this sermon today to some of the glories we behold as we listen to the communication between the Father God and the Son, specifically Jesus offering up this prayer in the context of Matthew's Gospel. So read with me, if you would, to begin this morning in Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. At this time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden, (coughs) excuse me, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And here we have in this prayer just a few verses, but it is a window into the communication between two persons of the Trinity. 
God the Father and God the Son. There are very few windows like this in Scripture which should remind us how rare and glorious this opportunity for us to read, record for, for us as we remember those portions in Scripture that give us just a little glimpse into the glories of what we will no doubt behold in greater measure when we step through the gates of glory into heaven itself. But we should remember how precious sections of Scripture like this are to us. This prayer recorded in Matthew shines like another worldly jewel, another way to say it. It's as if you were to find a treasure there within the course of your day-to-day, regular life, that is out of place because it belongs to a different dimension. And for me, when I read these sections, Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30, and also the great high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, it's like stepping for a moment into the throne room of glory, a place that we will spend lots of time in in the future. But right now seems like a glorious privilege and a gift to us, a little payment in advance for what Christ's blood has purchased in the next life. Just a taste of heaven and the kind of communication and the glories beyond the veil. So here we have one of those jewels that's standing here on this broken landscape and fallen earth within the pages of Scripture of the kind of glories we will behold when we step into heaven eternal. It's as if the curtain of this finite world is pulled back just a bit to hear the worship of heaven. There are, there are, I'm sure, conversations that have existed for all eternity, declarations of God's glory in heaven that bounce off the hallways of the throne room of glory into the ears of all the heavenly creatures and the saints who have preceded us, preceded us there, perhaps. However, it works in God's glorious time and redemptive scope when we will all gather together in that glorious communion. But these are the things that they talk about there, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity itself is a concept that is hard, indeed impossible in its total for us as mere men to grasp. Our minds just fall a little short, and we are too linear in our thinking to quite grasp the glories of the fact that the eternal God is one in three persons. But here, nevertheless, we have the privilege of listening to two of the persons talk to one another. These themes celebrated by the Godhead here proclaimed in such glorious doxological beauty. A doxology is like a song. It's like a summary of glorious, spontaneous praise upon considering the weight of a truth that absolutely, fundamentally changes our life. We read these doxologies in Scripture, closing glorious, encapsulated, compendious worship, after these moments of revelation. And here Jesus is on the earth and we have a doxology as it were in the midst of His great teaching. Teaching that includes judgment, proclamation, His law, and the moral requirements of the gospel, the plumb line of Scripture, the promise of redemption, shades of what it would look like, declaration of the kingdom of God, how it advances and grows, where it comes from, and where it is going. And we have this glorious doxology here as well. Perhaps we could look at Matthew 11 verses 25 through 30 as a summary or a summary of John 17. We opened this morning's service with some reading from that section. It's commonly referred to as Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer. The book of Hebrews tells us that he ever lives, that is Jesus Christ, the sole mediator between you sinner and a holy God. He ever lives to make intercession for us. That is, he prays, communicates to the Father on our behalf, on the basis of of my shed blood. I advocate, I stand in between this sinner and your holiness. And upon the price that I paid, may you grant this request. What an amazing thought. But if you ever wondered what that looked like or sounded like, this is a passage in Scripture that offers a sneak peek into that kind of interaction. This is a glorious thing to behold. John 17 underscores Christ's priesthood, bringing together themes of worship, kindness, and severity. And again, we see it here. The literary context of this section in Matthew reminds the disciple, the disciple of Jesus Christ, that even... 
in a state of cultural decay or the imploding situation around them due to the consequences of sins is so many smoldering remnants that there remains a remnant. There remains a remnant sheltered on the island of redemption in a sea of fearful reckoning. With that, I'll rewind to verse 20 and read with me the greater part of this literary context. Here Jesus, in a different tone altogether, brings proclamation, judgment over cities. He says, it says, Then He began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Cherazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And then it follows with our text this morning. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. That is, you have hidden the glories of redemption from, in some cases, whole, depraved, corrupt, apostate cities, Cherazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Sodom, Gomorrah. Jesus praises the Father, brings glory to Him for hiding things from certain sectors and segments historically and culturally of people who would otherwise fall into a different camp that you and I gloriously, mercifully share. You have revealed them, Jesus says, instead to little children. And if you are a believer... If you are among the poor in spirit, the unlikely Gentile, as we've been studying from Romans 11, as we've studied from the Beatitudes, the poor, the meek, the blind, the lame, the lonely, the epileptic, the paralytic, the diseased, those who recognize in body and soul their absolute dependence on a Creator for the being in the first place and on His plan of redemption for them to be made in right standing with Him, those are the little children and the exclusive few who have received the gospel. They are the ones who have received God's gracious will. And for those outside of that narrow, small, by God's grace alone community, that remnant, there are whole peoples and cities who have fallen under the righteous judgments of God. And listen, this verse in con- these verses in context declare... That God is equally worthy of glory in both circumstances. God is glorified in the fact that Sodomites, those who populated Sodom, as their sin was characterized in the Old Testament by gross perversions of every sort, God is glorified in their destruction. When fire destroyed them, as it will, every sinner, unregenerate, in hell one day, In due course, even in the history of this world, the Lord's glory was preserved and declared. And Jesus declares it again. He says at this time, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. Perhaps a heading for three points we could draw from this conversation between God the Son and God the Father is conversation topics worthy of the Godhead. What are conversation topics worthy of the Godhead? What are things that God Himself meditates on? The Word tells us that we ought to meditate on things that are just and pure and lovely of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy. If there be any virtue or praise, we ought to think on those things. These windows of opportunity where we can eavesdrop on the Trinity tell us what the conversation topics between the Father and the Son are. And the first one that I find from this section is this, the judgments and mercy of sovereign revelation. God reveals Himself in judgment, and God reveals Himself in mercy. The scope of His attributes is revealed. His righteousness, His unwavering commitment to His own holiness is revealed when He rains down fire from heaven 
on a whole city that was worthy of His judgment. And then God's mercy, His steadfast love, His kindness towards us is revealed when we as little children say, Yes, sir. Oh, yes, Heavenly Father. Save, please save a wretch like me. What kind of deeds justify the wisdom of Christ is another question that's answered by the judgments and mercy of sovereign revelation. Backing up even one more verse in verse 19 in this section, Jesus declares to the people that rejected both the one that went before and the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, He says to them, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at Him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I should back up to 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Then 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is the attitude of those who will be included if they do not repent of Cherizen, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Sodom, and Gomorrah. Jesus closes this indictment by saying here, wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, I am the second person of the Trinity. I am the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the Lamb who will be slain, and the only way, truth, and life for redemption. And that wisdom, that is God God incarnate here to dwell, the Word became flesh dwelling among you, that wisdom is justified. That wisdom is testified to, obvious, made known among you by her deeds. This is wisdom language that Jesus is identifying with himself and his work and his works. In other words, the Son of Man comes, revealing the power and way of redemption and glory of God. And how does he do so? How are his claims verifiable? Then he proceeds to denounce cities. And in so doing, he says that wisdom is justified two ways by his power and authority to judge and his power and authority to redeem. Jesus Christ is who He says He is, and we know Him to be so on the authoritative power of His judgments revealed in Scripture and by His power to redeem. There's a striking contrast in circumstances between verses 20 through 24 and 25 through 30. You can see the separation of the sheep and the goats. There's hell fire raining down upon the heads of the, those who do not accept Jesus on His own terms. But then there is a gracious will extended in loving arms, lifting burdens for little children who place their hope in their Heavenly Father. This contrast of circumstances is a difference as far removed as hell is from heaven. The difference in the situation is amazing here. It illustrates not only the separation between those who hold out skepticism against the claims, the truth claims of Christ and Scripture, and those who place their faith and trust unequivocally in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not only is that difference illustrated in the judgment that befalls these cities and the grace that it's extended to those with childlike faith, but also notice what else about Christ's authority and power is illustrated here. Perhaps this section is recorded in part to show the willful submission of Jesus Christ to the cross when contrasted with this authority He exercised. In other words, how gracious does the cross appear to us and how much more so when we realize that Jesus could have just as easily pronounced this judgment on everyone without ever going to the cross. Jesus had the power to call down a legion of angels to defend Him in an instant. When it was the perfect fulfillment of time at the fullness of such, when He would burst from that tomb, neither stone nor sword nor death itself could hold Him in that grave anymore. I love to preach around Easter time from that section at the end of Luke where it records the event of Jesus bursting forth from the bonds of death. There was a seal on the stone, there was a stone itself, and there was guards representing imperial Rome there. And Jesus busted through all three. He could have gone right through that stone. He was in his resurrected body. Why was the stone rolled away? I think in part to show us that the authority and power of Jesus Christ our Lord smashes the seals 
of illegitimate government, tracks them, moves aside the forces of nature that would otherwise be our undoing and we are captive and slave to. No stone can keep stand in the way of His will being done. And no sword, no power of man to oppose Him will ever have anything, will ever be successful in any way to stand against His overcoming triumphal power. That is the authority of Jesus Christ and His power pictured there when He rose again. And it's pictured here in another way when he brings and calls down judgment on whole peoples. But his power and authority is also revealed. And even more so, aspects of his character, his loving kindness towards us. In that, though he retains that authority, nevertheless, he took on the cup of the suffering. Took on that passion and took on the weight of our sin became sin for us, and was crucified and whipped by the sword of man under the seal of man, the government, and everything else, and was buried in a tomb in the earth, submitted to those forces to be our salvation. This contrast of circumstances is striking. And this is a conversation topic worthy of the Godhead. The power of God and the glory of God revealed And what He has done to save sinners is a meditation of the Trinity itself. It's a conversation that you would hear if you could eavesdrop on in glory. There are those, not only God the Father and the Son in the exchange between them, but those that surround the throne of God and sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb that was slain. And the buzz around the throne of glory and the conversations that dominate that entire context Speak to little else besides the glory of God revealed in the redemptive acts in time and history. When Jesus Christ was born of a woman, lived and preached the kingdom, an absolutely sinless life, took upon himself as the substitutionary payment our own sin, was crucified, dead, and buried, and then resurrected and ascended, and now seated at the right hand of the Father. Notice under this heading the judgment, or under this point, the judgment and mercy of sovereign revelation. That we also see the kindness and severity of God as worthy of praise in Jesus' own words. I thank you, Father, he says. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to children. This truth of the kindness and severity of God, two objects of Him, two aspects of His character that are worthy of praise, is underscored for us when Jesus thanks and praises God that He judges some and redeems others. We, here we have His electing, revelation of His electing power, though things were sovereignly closed and hidden from those who God chose in His mysterious will to forbid from the table of redemption Nevertheless, he revealed them to little children. These things, Jesus said, were were hidden from the wise and the understanding. Those who would be most apt by human measure to understand them were least apt to receive the revelation of the gospel. Those who were most able to offer a price in worldly goods to purchase it were often denied the thing they so desired. It was easier, Jesus later declared, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because little children are the ones whose disposition is more in line with hearts that have been prepared sovereignly by the Holy Spirit to come to the utter end of themselves, admit their sin, and stand in His grace alone. This week I was doing some study. I came across a great quote on the radio. And naturally I wondered who said it. The name of the man was Alfred North Whitehead. Alfred North Whitehead. He lived from, uh, I think he died in maybe 40s. I have his, uh, pretty famous for some 20th century philosophical conclusions and so on. This was a guy, it's just a great example I read this week of uh, the schooling of the higher academia and of the affluence and the influence that it affords us culturally. And in, in his writings, you know, as a, again, I say I was drawn in by a great quote. 
In his writings, I went on to read things like this. In this way, God is completed by the individual, fluent satisfactions of finite fact, and the temporal occasions are completed by their everlasting union with the transformed selves, purged into confirmation with the eternal order, which is the final absolute wisdom. The final summary can only be expressed in terms of a group of antitheses, whose apparent self-contradictions depend on neglect of the diverse categories of existence. In each antithesis, there is a shift of meaning which uh, converts the opposition into contrast. It is as true to say that God is permanent and the world fluent as the world is permanent and God is fluent. It is as true to say that God is one and the world many as that the world is one and God many. It is true to say that in comparison with the world, God is actual uh, imminently is actual imminently as that in comparison with God, the world is actual imminently. And it goes on and on. Do you guys understand any of that? If you do, you may be in the dangerous position of being among those who are the wise and understanding by worldly measure who cannot bring themselves as a little child to say, yes, Lord, I am nothing. I know nothing apart from your revealed revelation. I am absolutely, utterly at the mercy of your self-disclosure. If you go try to understand God outside of the Scriptures, you'll end up writing a bunch of drivel like that. You won't come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ whose blood alone can save you. You'll end up impressing lots of people, I'm sure, as this man certainly has, you know, I looked at a list of his in, people that he has influenced, and it was almost as long as the rest of his Wikipedia entry. Economists, ecologists, even theologians, God forbid. And all these different sectors of society, uh, ec- economics, ecology, everything that you can imagine. And they all looked at this guy as a herald and a font of wisdom. Well, you could tell in that quote, at least enough to know it's heresy, I trust. He was saying that God is as fluid as creation around us. That is not true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes, and God alone has ordained the means by which we change to be acceptable in His holy presence. I wanted to read you that quote to just let you know that we might be sometimes intimidated Or we might be tempted to pursue the intellectual, the mathematics, and the philosophy of the day, and all these different branches of disciplines, which only serve if they are outside the Lordship of Christ and aren't pursued as worship under Him to puff us up. These things that we can pursue would render us, if we were to place them at the top of our priority flowchart, as the obstinate, prideful, irreverent, and the autonomous, claiming, jaded, self-sufficient, Whole groups of people that deny that Jesus Christ alone is Lord of glory. The second person of the Trinity. The Lamb that was slain. The only one that can in His blood alone satisfy the requirements of a holy God for a sinful people to be justified in His presence. God forbid that we would think of ourselves so smart that we could conceive of God without the childlike faith in God's own self-disclosure in Scripture. Remember, as we view sections of Scripture like this, that we must do so as a child, listening, learning, curious, absorbing, and taking for granted the authority of our Father. I don't know if you remember when you were young and just learning about life, and if you had a good father, as I did and do and is with us today, and explained to me all of the things that he did, I took it unquestioned. He was the authority in my life. I listened. I learned. And didn't even occur to me. If someone else said, well, my dad said this, my answer was, my dad's bigger than your dad. <laughs> and that attitude is exactly what we need to have as little faithful children spiritually. That statement can't always be said in this life, but it is and can be always said in the realm of God eternal, Heavenly Father. If you come up another, against another false claim for truth in this life, what should your answer be as a little child who resists 
the wise and the understanding that is skeptical and denies the word of God and the authority of his Christ, what should you answer? You should answer, my dad is bigger than your dad. My dad can beat your dad up. And my dad will beat your dad up. And this is how he'll do it. If you don't repent, you'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for your dad. And that really is, in more simple terms, what's at stake here. Secondly, the ways and means of redemptive favor. Under this heading, conversation topics worthy of the Godhead, we find the Father and the Son discussing judgments and mercy that both speak to the sovereignty of revelation. But secondly, we find them talking of the ways and means of redemptive favor. And here, as Jesus goes on to expound on His own will, And the grace that is the grounds of our salvation, he says in verse 26, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, 26 and 27, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus is sharing in this communication with the Father, in this moment of pause and prayer, of worship and communion of the Godhead, the foundation of salvation. He's reminding us as he shares with his Father in glorious interchange, the foundation of salvation is the Father's gracious will. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. God has provided redemption for us in his mercy. God has sovereignly and rightly judged others. And we don't know exactly why other than to say it is his gracious will will we are not smart enough to know exactly all the ways and means of god but we ought to be fearful enough to realize that they are a source of meditation and worship for us we ought to be reminded in this section of the attitude that paul commanded the romans should have remember the kindness and severity of god the severity of god in committing whole people groups to judgment the kindness of god ransoming you against all ethnic odds, those who are Gentile dogs excluded from the Scriptures and from the cultural heritage that would, you, that would inform you of who the Messiah was. Those things were valuable in every way. And though you and I didn't have them as Gentiles in our cultural and ethnic history, we nevertheless received them. Received them by the mouth of the apostles, by the Holy Word of God, by reading these Scriptures this morning. And how did we receive them? Well, we can say further, it was His gracious will. Through His Word spoken, through the mouth of His faithful witnesses, by the preservation of His church and His testimony, in preparing preachers and evangelists to bring the gospel forward, generation to generation, such was God's gracious will towards us. And such is the foundation of our salvation And this is a conversation topic worthy of the Godhead. And it's one that we can talk about between ourselves, even as we listen to what Jesus says about it to the Heavenly Father and to us. Further in this section, consider in the ways and means of redemptive favor, the scope of the redemptive roles of Christ. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to Him. When He says in this section they've been revealed or handed over, excuse me, to me, we should understand the context of the next chapter where Jesus tells us something about Himself. So can adding those two ideas together, the fullness of understanding in verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and so on. 
That fullness of understanding is bolstered when we read the context. Just a few verses to point you to, towards as you turn a page over, perhaps. In Matthew 12, verse 6, Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would, have not, or you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is speaking to the experts in the sacrificial order of his day. He's talking about what they considered a Sabbath violation committed by him. And they judged it so because they failed to realize who he was. Who was this mysterious man, this preacher, this rabbi that was walking in front of them with a bold audacity to go against their laws and to eat grain on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus lets them in, a little sneak peek, go and find out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He tells them something greater than the temple is here. And he was speaking of himself. All things have been handed over to Jesus Christ, who is greater than the temple. The temple was the apex of redemptive glory that any man had ever known up until that point. But Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb that would be slain, the Lamb that would take away the sins of the world, was walking back and forth across Galilee, across the Holy Land, and that man contained within himself something greater, infinitely so, than the temple itself. He would be the final and last and full sacrifice and payment for sins. And here in this declaration we have some self-disclosure of His priestly order. Later we read in the same section as Jesus is again taking the scribes and Pharisees to school. He says in verse 41, again after issuing a declaration of judgment against the generation, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, again these words, something greater than Jonah is here. All things, again, from Isaiah 11, Matthew eleven twenty seven. all things have been handed over to me. Who is he? He is greater than Jonah. He is the greatest of all prophets, the greatest of all priests. Behold, something greater is here. Something greater than Jonah. That is the role of the prophet as we understand it, taking the words of God and communicating them to the mind of man. And here was the prophet of prophets, the word of God incarnate. They should have hung on every word as it was a word proceeding from the very mouth of God. In this same section, verse 42, the queen of the south will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, again, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the temple. Something greater than Jonah. Something greater than Solomon is here. And again, we remember Redemptive terms, historically, Solomon represented the high watermark of the earthly kingdoms of Israel. Never did the kingdom of Israel have more international acclaim, glory, and influence than it did at the reign of Solomon. It was never equaled again until this moment. And at this moment, it's hard not to throw in a lot of parentheses here. Let me just add one more. When Jesus Christ was born... Kings came from afar, other countries presumably, bringing gold, frankincense and myrrh. You remember, we call them the wise men. And they visited Jesus at his birth. Why did that happen? It was symbolic of this truth. Something greater than Solomon is here. It had been a long time since foreign dignitaries were compelled to take a journey, a pilgrimage to the Mecca of wisdom, if you will. Sorry for that irreverent term. To the apex of wisdom as represented and glean what they could and bring gifts. It had been a long time. It had been since the queen of the south had risen up and come to this, to this area. Not since Solomon had Israel known that kind of influence. But at this point in history, something greater than Solomon was here. And so the kings came from afar. They were among those, I presume, included in God's gracious will who, like little children, came to Jesus Christ understanding that they had nothing to offer that was deserving of their merit, but He had everything they needed necessary for salvation. 
Jesus emphasized in the next chapter his priestly, his prophetic, and his kingly role. And in the context of Matthew 27, that helps us understand the power and the authority behind his declaration when he declares the ways and means of redemption as all things have been handed over to me, prophet, priest, and king by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. And finally, under this section, ways and means of redemptive favor, we're reminded of this concept in Scripture of union with Christ. We've referred to it earlier in our study as a gospel chain. Recall Matthew 10, verse 40. Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives uh, me, receives him who sent me. You see that gospel chain there? We receive the word of God as born upon the lips of the apostles or someone sharing the gospel with you. Where did they get it from? Jesus Christ preaching the kingdom through the scriptures. Where did he get it from? He got it from the Father. And if you try to bypass that chain of revelation, there is no salvation. That is the narrow way. Another gospel chain. It's called Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation in Latin. We find in Romans chapter 8, begins with the foreknowledge of God. This was something that God planned before the foundation of the world, and we are walking in. It emphasizes to us, again, that the ways and means of redemption are in the secret will of God and unfold to us in the hearing of His Word. But if it didn't happen, we wouldn't have gotten saved. We didn't find it of our own strength and searching, of our own merit inside. Again, Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He also called, he, or he called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Again, reminding us that there is a narrow path, a chain of command, a flowchart of authority, a way to know God. And there are no shortcuts. All things have been handed to Jesus Christ by the Father. And no one knows Jesus Christ, no one knows the Son, except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Amazing. These are the conversation topics worthy of the Godhead. Topic number three, panoramic parable. There's a panoramic parable of divine prayer in this divine prayer. That is, there's a scope of redemption here and just a few short verses that adds uh, additional richness to the gospel that we don't otherwise see immediately. Up to this point, Jesus has been revealing a little bit at a time to his disciples what he must suffer and what he must go through. But later he tells them why. And you remember, it wasn't really till Pentecost when it all dawned on them, things started to click. And Peter, instead of denying Christ in fear, when Christ was doing the very thing he prophesied he would, instead goes out and says, based on that very act that I was blind to, I now preach the gospel to all of you. It's the only way of salvation. Well, in the gospels, Jesus reveals typically a little at a time. We've called this the ark of redemption. If you read a gospel like Matthew, there's things he's saying in the first discourse that don't always include every aspect of redemption. You have to keep reading. And in the arc of redemption, you get to the end, and you see in his own work, and the historical narrative of his own shed blood on Calvary, that that's what he meant when John said, Behold the Lamb of God. That's what he meant when he said, The Son of Man must be lifted up as the serpent was in the wilderness. Well, in spite of that normal order of progression within the Gospels, sometimes we get this glimpse of panoramic parable in the middle. And I submit to you, this is one of those. Notice how Jesus closes. He says, come to me, all who labor, in verse 28, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we ask ourselves the question, what could Jesus be referring to? In light of the gospel, it becomes more obvious. 
What are the laboring, the laborings of the child who comes to Christ and asks Him to remove their greatest burden? Well, we could perhaps refer to two chapters or so earlier. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, which records this story. Verse 2. Behold, some people brought to him, that is to Jesus, a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. There's a little window, a little glimpse. Everyone else is stunned. They can't believe it. They're not sure if they should consider this the most amazing moment in recorded history thus far, or if the right thing to do would be to pick up stones and kill this man for blasphemy. Verse 3. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Who do you think, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, listen to their response. They were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. When we read that section, a little glimpse in the power and the authority of Jesus, which I'm sure left most everybody completely befuddled. And a real sense of terror and fear. And yes, they glorified God, but they weren't sure what all was going on there. It becomes clear to us, perhaps, when we read that Jesus Christ came to relieve the labor and the heavy burden of everyone who trusts in Him. Jesus Christ came and said, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Surely the laboring and the heavy laden would most ultimately be described by those who not only have sickness of the body, but ultimately sickness of the soul. One who is struggling in the weight of his own sin and guilt, and also struggling to even walk because in this fallen world he had been afflicted and lame. One like this would know, would understand what it means to labor and to be heavy laden. But only one like Jesus could alleviate that great burden. Only one alone. Come to me, he says, to the paralytic of heart. You who labor and are heavy laden under the weight of guilt and sin, and I will give you rest. We see in this section, his recorded miracle, chapter 9, verse 1 through 8, there's sickness and sin, and salvation, all evident there, to which the authority and glory and fear are the responses of Jesus Christ and the people. It's evident in this man that there is sin and there is sickness as a reality of our condition in this fallen world, but he has been gloriously saved from both sickness and sin. How does he know? Well, by the the evident change in his body, Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive the condition of his heart, and thus he has received salvation and assurance of the same. Well, this could only be true if that man who was walking around, who we thought moments ago was just a teacher, had instead an authority that was worthy of glory, infinitely beyond what we imagine. And this is why when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They were afraid because they had so grossly misunderestimated this man. Who was he? We must rethink everything that we presumed. They glorified God. They were, I trust, among them anyway, those who, like little children, had the gracious will of the Heavenly Father shed abroad in their hearts till in dawning increments they realized that this was more than just a man. Later in this section, Jesus says, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus exchanges our labor and our heavy burden with his own yoke and with his teaching and with rest. We might wonder what the yoke is that Jesus is commanding that we bear. The yoke that is easy and burden that's light. In 1038, he has already said, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If there is a yoke that we're called to bear, which is the loss of life as we know it, to gain life eternal in the scope of the, redempt- of the panoramic parable of redemption, it is truly a light load indeed. And later we find, or throughout the gospel, we find that when Jesus was teaching, he was giving us shades, aspects. He was giving us parables, stories, anecdotes that would provide for us a catalog of understanding so that when the Holy Spirit activated it to its heart, our heart, we would understand something of the kingdom of God. That elusive concept that makes the sinner scoff but saves the one who is poor in spirit upon the revelation that there is a king, a sovereign, who has a realm that extends infinitely in every direction, among whom he decrees the terms through his law, how the subjects are in good standing with him. This is the kingdom of God in four easy ways to understand. Sovereign, subject, realm, and law. And that's what Jesus was teaching. How can you, sinner, be judged a worthy subject, a citizen in good standing of the sovereign God, the one who reserves the right to judge as he did in Sodom and Gomorrah, and every sinner deserves? Now, there's only one way. You must receive the righteousness of a law keeper. You have not kept it. There must be a substitute who will stand in your face who can justify you, who can declare you righteous and in good standing before the sovereign. Sovereign, subject, realm, and law. And this teaching makes so much sense in the panorama of God's revelation through the gospel. And here we see really a symbol-laden summary of it in Jesus' panoramic parable. Finally, yoke and burden rendered easy and light. And I close this message by reminding you of another prayer in Matthew's gospel. And let's turn here in closing. That would be chapter 26. If there is a glorious exchange that takes place within redemption, where the heaviness of our own sickness ultimately in our sin is exchanged for a a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light, our cross-bearing that we do in anticipation of heaven eternal, on what basis does that rest? Well, the cross immediately comes to mind. If Jesus had not taken on the weight of His passion and the cup of the Heavenly Father, that was our salvation by His gracious will, but His own death and suffering, this prayer would never have been answered. I mentioned to you before, there's relatively few prayers of Jesus to the Father within the Gospels. You can count them on one hand usually, depending what book you're in. And in Matthew, we have the Lord's Prayer, and we have the prayer we've just been studying. As far as I know, the interaction between the Trinity concludes with this record in Matthew 26 in two places, first in verse 39 in Garden of Gethsemane. And going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is a different moment. This is an intensity of interaction that strikes a different chord, a different tone than the prayer we've just read. As we eavesdrop on the conversations of the Trinity here, here we find where the consequences of Calvary can finally be experienced because of what Jesus went through. And in His communication with the Father and our listening in, we realize the weight of His suffering. This is the Lord of glory. This is the perfect man. This is the one who of anyone would be infinitely able to bear the weight of the Father's cup, yet crying out in anguish, That if there was any possible way, he might be removed from the stress and the pain and the suffering and the utter anguish of what he was about to bear. Verse 42, we read again. 
Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And thus the events of Good Friday commence. Only after Jesus Christ, in communication with the Heavenly Father, pleaded three times that if there be any possible way, that the yoke that He must bear, so that our yoke might be lifted, might be dealt with in another way, nevertheless resolving Himself to the same will that He glorifies in Matthew eleven twenty five, the will of the Father, which placed on His back the crushing weight of our sin. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank You, it said, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed to them, them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. In closing of this message, remember as we listen to the words of Jesus Christ and as His person, His work, His attributes and character are revealed to us on the pages of the Gospel, remember that something greater is here. Not only that, that something greater came. Something greater was crucified. The prophet of prophets. The priest of priests. The king of kings came for us. Just as we pondered last or a couple weeks ago, the cognizance of fear and worship worthy our rescue as Gentiles and then our grafting in to the olive tree. Let us consider additionally from this section of Scripture the awe-striking reality as we listen through the keyhole of God's throne room to the conversations of the Godhead. Let's listen to the reality that Jesus expresses in glorious terms to the Father, the exaltation that heaven's chorus joins, our own salvation, our own hope for life eternal. And then may it move us to echo in the Spirit of Jesus Christ, our Lord, to praise the Lord with worthy expression of glorious songs, prayer, and commitment, heart attitudes, and dedication, and service, and obedience, and cross-bearing. Let all of these thoughts in the Scriptures prompt us to move forward boldly, fearfully, with fullness of joy, and with a tenacity and perseverance that the world has never known as we consider the gracious will of the Heavenly Father that has hidden these things from others yet gloriously revealed them to us, His little children. Let's close in prayer. O gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for all of the providences, the miraculous things that have come into line to grant us the opportunity to stand here at the keyhole of the throne room and listen to the conversations between the Son and the Father that can be applied to our heart by the Holy Spirit who is sent upon the purchasing power of Jesus' complete work as our comforter to make manifest to our souls the reality of redemption. I pray that as we, Lord, go over and over these things in Scripture, that we would realize that every pass we make over words like this, that there is more riches to glean. And I pray that we would cry out in anguish for the capacity to retain, to understand, and to apply that which your precious blood purchased. Against all odds odds for us. Sinners caught in the weight of our transgression. The death and the horrible miry clay of sin. But now set free by, by, by your sacrifice. That made a way for us to be holy. And stand in the holy presence of God. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we close in worship this morning, I would just encourage you to make the next few moments a real way to apply what we've studied today. And in a few moments, we'll make an announcement or two and close.